Our scripture reading this morning will be from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Again, that is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Good morning, everybody. I always like it when Brother Gary's out of town. I wanted to share something with you this morning. I've gleaned a lot from books and sermons and things like that recently um, on one topic in particular, some very interesting uh, perspectives on an old familiar story. You might have gotten a hint from the title in the bulletin. You might have gotten a hint from the song we just sang. But before we get to that, I'd like to see a show of hands. I'd like to see a little bit of participation. I'm going to show you a picture, and I want you to raise your hand if you can imagine it to be easy to love this dog. few people, maybe a third. Okay, okay, um, not a whole lot of people though, and I don't blame you because this is, it, it's sort of a crude illustration, it's not even a real dog, um, it's just, it's two-dimensional, but you can use your imagination. It, it's possible if, if I had a dog like that, yeah, you could love that dog. Um, I'm going to ask you a second question, show of hands again. Now, be honest, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, too offended but uh, raise your hand if you can imagine loving this dog. There you go. Okay. Thank you, guys. Yes, that's my dog, Lola. Um, you might find it easier to, to love something like this. This, First of all, it's a real dog, right? It's not just a crude two-dimensional. It's a three-dimensional real dog. You could reach out and pet her. And she's wearing sunglasses, too, so that, that makes it funnier. She looks funny in Jeanette's sunglasses, but Lola does all sorts of other funny things, too. She, when she's trying to really understand what we're saying, she'll sort of tilt her head just a little bit and really try hard. She doesn't really know what we're saying most of the time, but she'll try. And she'll pounce on her toys in a funny way, and she'll go get her bowl, and she'll drop it and kick it around and yell at it and that sort of stuff. She does all sorts of fun things. She loves a laser pointer. She can never get too much of that. Um, Over the years, we've had her for maybe five or six years, and over the years, I've really gotten a chance to get to know her. At first, I didn't love her very much. We almost took her back to the pound. I don't think they would have taken her back, but we almost got rid of her. But I'm glad we didn't because after some time, I really grew to love her. And if you didn't raise your hand, maybe you're just a cat person or something. I don't know. (laughs) I'll let it slide. Um, I love my dad as well. Uh, My dad, not only because of who he is, he's my dad, but because he's never met a stranger. He's always got a whistle on his lips He's always telling really corny jokes. I know him. I spent most of my life with him. I love my wife because I know her. She's really silly sometimes. And the more I get to know her, the deeper my love for her grows. And this is how it is with all of us. I'm sure we could all take all of our time this morning and tonight and tomorrow talking about all of the various reasons why we love the people and the things that we love. But it would all boil down to basically one reason. 
we've taken the time, we've invested time into those things, and we know those things. We know those people. I want to attempt to do the same thing with us for Jesus. Because we sometimes are presented with a two-dimensional view of Jesus. This caricature of him, and that's a real shame. I want us to know him better than we ever have before. I want to wipe away some of the misconceptions that we get sometimes of him. And I want to replace those with the Jesus that's revealed to us from the gospel accounts. How does that sound? First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, as Brother Jacob just read, Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Knowing Jesus was important to Paul, he should be very important to us. I want to start here, the humanity of Jesus. Now, this may or may not seem obvious to you, depending on who you are, depending on your upbringing, depending on your background, but Jesus did not just float through life with a sparkling white robe and this spaced-out look on his face and making these weird sort of gestures like these pictures here. We see these paintings, and and they're beautiful paintings of some other person. This is not the Christ that we, we learn about from the Gospels. He did not wear lipstick and have rouge on, and he wasn't this pale, sickly figure. This is so far from the portrait that we learn of from the gospel that it's almost blasphemous. First of all, we must see and understand that Jesus Christ was a real man. Sometimes we might think of him like we think of Einstein in our uh, middle school math class or kindergarten math class. One plus one is two. You know, Einstein in there, he'd have a real easy time with it. No, Jesus was a real man. He wasn't just pretending. Jesus was on our same level. He was God, yes. He was sinless, yes. But he was also a real person, just like you and me. Or we might think of like Mozart in a beginner piano class. You know, not really on the same level. It's for some reason things are easier for him and different for him. He, do, he, he hasn't gone through the things that I've gone through. But no. No. John says in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8 says, He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He was not pretending to be human. He was not pretending. He was actually a human, the only begotten of God. The one who created Mary had to spend nine months in her womb. Have you ever considered that? Developing arms and legs and lungs when he was born, he was a helpless infant. He wasn't just a tiny little adult. He was a baby. Sometimes we see pictures like this. Not really a baby, but sort of just like a a small adult. And he's looking so reassuringly at his parents saying, Oh, everything's going to be okay. I'm not like a regular baby. I don't cry. Um, I'll take care of you guys. No, he was a baby. He was an infant. He actually came into this world the same way we all come into this world. He depended on this couple who, culturally and historically speaking, were very likely teenagers. He depended on them completely for love, for food, for shelter, for training, for all of the things that he needed. The God who knows no beginning and no end, he entered time and space. That God who knows no boundaries entered the body of a helpless baby. He made himself entirely vulnerable. He got dirty diapers. 
He had to learn to roll over. He had to learn how to walk. The Word of God, John chapter 1, had to learn to use words. Jesus, this is a bowl. Can you say bowl? Bowl. Whatever the Hebrew equivalent is. Humbling indeed. Very humbling. How humble must God be to go through this? Paul says brilliantly in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. Yes, indeed. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus had a personality too, though, believe it or not. Jesus had dislikes, he had likes, he had opinions, desires, he had needs. He was vulnerable, as we mentioned. He was happy, sad, hopeful, fearful. Simple faith thrilled him, but self-righteousness infuriated him. He was lonely sometimes. He was misunderstood. He got hot and cold and hungry and tired, just like you and I do. Think about it. The creator of the clouds allowed himself to be rained upon. The creator of our sun allowed himself to be underneath its oppressive heat in the Middle Eastern summer in the desert. John chapter 4, starting at verse 5. If you'd like to turn there. John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Look closely and you'll see a person not pretending, but someone who is actually tired from the journey. He had to sit down. He had to ask for help from a woman, a Samaritan woman nonetheless, for a drink of water because his disciples went to go get food. He was hungry and thirsty and tired, and his feet probably hurt. He was human. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, when his cousin John was killed, Jesus got word. What did he do? He withdrew by boat to a solitary place. Matthew 14, 13, the man who unceasingly offered himself to others. Needed room to grieve. He needed time to mourn. Have you ever been so sad that you just needed to be alone for a while? Jesus has. He's been there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. The Garden of Gethsemane. Have you ever been so scared or so sad that you couldn't be alone for even a moment? Jesus said, stay here and watch with me. He asked his friends, don't leave me alone, not now, please. He who created love and friendship longed for them both. This is so fascinating to me. John chapter 13, John chapter 13, starting in verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him. Will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Loneliness and disappointment is something we all share with him. Imagine living your life where the people you are closest to give up on you the moment things get hard. Jesus has been there. 
But in the same breath, in the very same breath, that he expresses such disappointment. He also comforts his friends and tells them of his longing for their company anyway. The very next verse, John chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wanted their company so bad that he would die for it. In this exchange, though, it continues. Philip asks a question that troubled Jesus. It showed that even one of his closest friends who has been with him for years did not really know who Jesus was. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. But Jesus replies, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know, Philip? Don't you know me, Philip? After so many years, don't you know? Jesus knew how it felt to be misunderstood, not only by his enemies, but those who were closest to him, to go on for years unknown and unappreciated by those closest to you. Wow, it it really does hurt. And I think it's something we've all been through. If you haven't, hang on, you probably will. He knew what it was like to be judged unfairly, to be used, to be wanted, not for who you are, but for what you can do for someone else. The droves of people who followed him from place to place for the loaves and the fishes and the miracles, they gave up on him quickly once things got hard. John chapter 6. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? Jesus knows how all of this feels. He wasn't just pretending. He was a man. He was a human, just like me and you. He's been where we've been and so much more. When I think of these aspects of my Lord, he doesn't seem so far away. He seems a lot closer and more relatable, easier to love. He seems so much easier to care for and appreciate. He's been through what I've been through. He understands. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He has been there, and he does understand. We need to forget the image that is portrayed sometimes. He was a real person. Life affected Jesus. God embraced our humanity so fully that as Jesus, he allowed himself to die. That's how fully he embraced our humanity. And the more we realize his humanity, the closer we can grow to him and trust him and love him. He isn't so far away that he's unable to understand what we go through. He was just like us in a lot of ways. Number two, the personality of Jesus. The personality of Jesus. What about his personality? Was Jesus, the the Jesus that you have in your mind, is he boring? Is he always preaching about sermons and things, or was he sometimes playful and funny? Is he just a cardboard cutout, or is he a real person like you with a real personality? I think the Bible says that he was. And no more clearly is this apparent than just after his death. We'll look at John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Just after his death and resurrection, we find these events happening. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself 
Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered to him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. Verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, verse 12, Come, eat breakfast. So there's a lot going on here. Let's go back to the beginning. First, the disciples have gone fishing, and can you blame them? Imagine what they've been going through for the, the last few days. They, uh, the events have been just entirely overwhelming for them. The emotional high of the triumphal entry, people waving palm branches, crowds gathered around Christ, shouting, Hosanna, save now, I pray. They're ready to crown him as king. But just shortly after that, it turned into a riotous crowd and it all crashed lower than anyone thought possible. Their beloved Jesus, their friend for many years, was tortured and executed and entombed. The disciples are not really sure what to do next. John 21 says that they were afraid of the Jews. They, had, they basically, for that month and a half or so, they were locked inside for most of the time. They feared for their lives. Their leader was killed. What in the world is going to happen to us? But unable to endure one more agonizing moment of waiting around in the house, they do what any self-respecting fisherman would do when they wanted to go clear the head. They go fishing. Okay, but before we continue, what would you guess Jesus' mood is this day? What would you guess his mood is like? The man just conquered death. He saved mankind. He's been restored to his father, and he's in the afterglow of the greatest triumph in the history of mankind. Would it be safe to say that he's happy? Probably. Probably very happy. But the disciples here are not. They've been up all night. They're tired. They have nothing to show for it. And they're not really sure what to make of their lives at this point. They could use some cheering up. But what does Jesus do? Notice how casually Jesus enters the scene. His best friends don't even know it's him. He could have announced his return on the beach with this spectacular display of his glory. Or at least shouted out to them and not waited so long. Hey guys, it's me. Come on. No, he sort of plays with them for a little while. He knows nothing in this world would help his friends more than to see him again, but he does the opposite. He hides himself a little bit longer. He lets it play out. He casually asks what any tourist would ask any fisherman when they're going by, hey, do you guys catch anything yet? One more thing. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. How did these, his closest friends, first meet Jesus? How did they meet him? Luke chapter 5 says it was here on the shores of this very lake, possibly in the very same spot, knowing how fishermen like to keep their boat in a particular place. In almost the exact same way, the first encounter also involved the guys going fishing. 
staying up all night long, catching nothing. And with a similarly random tip from a complete stranger about how to catch fish. Both instances, they ended up catching an overwhelming number. So this has happened before. It was Jesus, it was how Jesus pulled them into following him in the first place. Try the other side. That's how he lets them know it's him. That's how Jesus let his friends know that it was him. It has all of the signs of an inside joke. He did it before. He's doing it again. I'm sure over the years that Jesus spent with his disciples, they told each other that story. Oh, remember that time? Peter, he said, oh, Lord, I'm unworthy. You know, I'm sure they made fun of each other about that, and they remembered it finally. And when John said, it's the Lord, Peter remembered it right away. He, jumped, he couldn't even wait for them to row back to the shore. He knew immediately that their friend was back. They found Jesus waiting for them there. Not ready with a sermon, but he's cooking breakfast. He's cooking breakfast. Do you see the playfulness of Jesus? The timing, the tension, his hiddenness. The same lame suggestion from someone they think knows nothing about fishing. Oh, he's, telling, he's trying to tell us how to do our job. Oh, did you try the other side? Of course we tried the other side. We've been out here all night long. You think the fish is on this side and not on that side? But bang! Jesus surprises them again. And he hooks them the second time, just like he did the first time. Reconciled with his friends, with a beautiful and playful story. Luke chapter 24, this one's even better. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Here are two of Jesus' disciples, about as grief-stricken and sad as human hearts possibly could be. They think he's dead. They think it's all over. Okay? If any moment in, in, in the world called out for good news, it's this one. But Jesus enters the scene so casually. He just jogs up right next to them and says, Hey, what are you guys so sad about? Verse 18 is funny. One of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Are you serious? You really don't know what happened? And this is, this is where Jesus' personality really shines through, I think. Verse 19. He said to them, What things? What things? What things? Can you believe it? Cleopas certainly can't believe it. Uh, how could anyone miss what happened in Jerusalem the past few days? The triumphal entry, the angry mobs, the land was made dark for hours on end during the middle of the day. The earth shook violently and rocks cracked open. The veil in the temple was rent in two. The dead were even raised and went to the city and spoke with people. What things? Of course Jesus knew about it, but he feigns ignorance. So they explained to him like he doesn't know. They explained how they had such high hopes that they were now broken and confused and sad. We have two of Jesus' closest friends. Their heartache and sorrow is palpable. You can feel it. As in this moment, crying out for him to reveal himself to them. Look, it's me. I'm alive. It's okay. You don't have to be sad anymore. Go tell the world. 
It's all going to be all right. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He carries on with a disguise for some time, apparently. And then comes this unbelievable moment. Verse 28. They drew near to the village which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. Jesus is walking with his two friends. They have no idea it's him. And he's pretending to act like, okay, guys, well, I, I got to go. Um, hope everything works out for you. I'll, I'll see you. He acted as if he was going to keep going. And he makes them beg him to stay. And he stays. Okay, you twisted my arm. I'll stay. Verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke and gave it to them. In the next verse, again, after quite some time, we see that he finally allows them to see through his disguise. They recognize him. This is our Jesus. What does he do? Does he stick around and comfort them, and bask in their happiness, give them a hug, or say a few words to encourage them? No. Verse 31, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Poof. Guys, this is the Jesus that we serve. This is not a boring person. If, if any two words could not describe Jesus, it is boring and predictable. He seemed more emotional, more playful, more spontaneous than the average person, not less. This is the Jesus that we read about in the Bible. Jesus is God, again, yes, and sinless, yes, but he's also a person just like you and me. He had things that he liked to do. The more I get to know him and his unique personality, how playful and interesting he was, the more I love him. And I hope it's the same for you. His strength and his zeal, the zeal of Jesus, finally this morning. John chapter 2. Turn to John chapter 2. This is one of my favorite stories again, starting in verse 13. John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found the temple, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. Okay, so far so good. Nothing unusual happening here. A lot of Jews in Jerusalem, it's around the Passover time, they're selling things. But what happens in verse 15? When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. In two verses, Jesus clears the temple. But let's take the account slowly. First, Jesus observes what's going on in the temple And it makes him furious. So he goes to make a weapon. First, he has to find the cords to make it. Second, he has to have the knowledge and and foresight and skill to be able to braid these things together to make an effective weapon. And in all of this, there's time for him to cool down if he was just angry. But he didn't. This was a determined effort by Jesus. This was a sustained anger. A righteous indignation at what was going on. He used the whip to drive them all out of the temple. The livestock would have been kept in pens or stalls, standing around for hours, lethargic, in a daze, maybe half asleep. I don't know how sheep uh, work like that or how cows work, but it's probably pretty boring in there. And a man springing on them all of a sudden with shouts and cracks of a whip and the things flipping over it would have erupted them into a mass panic. 
and animals feed upon one another's fear in seconds. And picture the sheep and the cattle running for their lives, crashing down the corrals, their hooves frantically sliding on the smooth stones in the temple would have only incited them more. It would have been, brothers and sisters, a stampede. It then says he poured out the coins of the money changers. And when it says money changers, think men who make their money through extortion. Crooks, not people you'd want to mess with. But he sent their tables tumbling anyway. Have you ever known someone to get so mad that they literally flip a table over, not caring who's behind it, who's got their feet up on top of it, not caring what's on it, just flipping a table over? Jesus doesn't simply permit them, oh, please, gather your things. I'd like you to clear out of here. You know, this, this is inappropriate. You shouldn't do this. Get, get these things out of here. You know you're not supposed to. No. He doesn't give them that chance. He starts whipping and yelling and flipping. Picture the sheep and cattle running for their lives. This would have been explosive. Not only uh, the tables, but the things on the tables Imagine the coins. They didn't have dollar bills. They had metal. And if you ever dropped something metal on something tile or stone, you know how loud it is. Picture hundreds or thousands of coins spilling onto this, just adding to the noise, the cacophony. And the money changers, they wouldn't just stand there. They'd be running trying to collect their money. If someone took your wallet and threw all your money out into the wind, would you just stand there and let it happen, or would you run out and try to catch it? And then the the people who own the animals, they'd be yelling and trying to herd the animals together, and all of it would have just added up to this just big riot. How amazing to watch. But this is our Jesus. This was a fierce man. This was so far from the weak pale, sickly image that we get sometimes of him. This was a strong, furious, zealous man. But in the midst of the story, he was not reckless, you'll see. You'll notice what he does to to the doves. The doves would have been in cages. They would not have been able to simply fly away or flee like the people or the animals. He says to them, in a moment of tenderness, to the people who had the doves, take them out of here. He didn't flip them over and step on them and let them get trampled or anything like that. He said, no, take them out of here. So in all of this, in all of his fury and his zeal, he was still tender. Now, could a small, unintimidating figure have accomplished such a sustained riot? To pull off driving all of them out of the temple would require more than a few seconds, more than a few yells, more than a few cracks of his whip. Jesus hears a locomotive. That's the Jesus of the Bible. If a frail man with a meek, weak voice tried this, he would have been laughed at or just ignored entirely. Yes, Jesus is described as the Lamb of God, but he was no weak man. Don't forget that he was also described as a lion. As a lion. This is our Jesus. It's a breathtaking portrait, I think, of our Lord. Jesus could be gentle, and he certainly was humble and meek. But his determined zeal and strength was simply amazing to watch. We serve, brothers and sisters, a passionate God. The things he cares for, he cares for very deeply. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, he compares the value of one person's soul to the entire world. He cares for us so much, his zeal and love and passion for just one of us. 
outweighs the entire world. The things he cares for, he cares for very deeply. The same strength and zeal and love that Jesus had toward his father's house, he has toward us. And we should likewise have toward him. He deserves nothing less. Amen? But right now, he is gentle and patient, but one day... He will come back to judge us all. We will see this side of him again that the people in the temple saw that day. And we ought to be prepared. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. The Lord Jesus. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I do not want to be on the other end of the whip. I don't want to be the money changer in the temple. And I pray that you don't either. It's indeed hard, brothers and sisters, to love a two-dimensional figure. It's impossible to devote yourself, your entire life, to something like this. But sometimes that's what we try to do with our Lord. We have this bland, false, two-dimensional picture of Christ. And so our zeal for him is weak. Our love for him is weak. We, we really could care less. We couldn't care less if we serve him or don't serve him or if someone offends him or if we're doing right or doing wrong because we don't know him. He doesn't mean anything to us. But when he changes from a two-dimensional figure into who he really was, brothers and sisters, it's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot easier to love him and to serve him. We need to remember he was a real person with real feelings and desires. He desired so much our friendship in our companionship, whatever you have gone through, he understands and he cares. He does. He had a personality, just like you and me, not just some cardboard cutout. He was playful, intriguing even. Finally this morning, he was zealous. He was strong and loving and so much more. Let's be found on his side when he comes again. Jesus prayed these words in John chapter 17 as we, as we wrap up. John chapter 17 and verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If we know Jesus, we can have eternal life. Because in him, Ephesians 1.7, is where all spiritual blessings lie. To know God is to love him. To love him is to serve him. And his gift is eternal life. The more we love him, the more we know him... The, the better we can serve him, the more pleasing we can be to him. Can we help you this morning? Can we help you get right with God? If you're not a Christian, can we study with you and let you know what it means to know Christ and to obey Christ? If you're already a Christian, can we help you to start serving him better? Please, let us know how we can help as we together stand and sing for your encouragement.